0: This is Crime Connections. We're your hosts. I'm Leah. And I'm Jackie. Today's case is a 31-year-old mystery about the disappearance of three women from Springfield, Missouri. 47-year-old Cheryl Levitt, her 19-year-old daughter Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's friend, 18-year-old Stacey McCall, seemingly vanished into thin air, never to be seen or heard from again. It is an unsolved case that shook the small town of Springfield to its core, and it continues to be shrouded in mystery. In June of 1992, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall were getting ready to graduate from high school. School is almost out for the summer. They're excited to be starting on this new journey, leaving high school behind, entering adulthood. I'm sure everyone can kind of reminisce
1: mm-hmm. that good feeling, like we're finally done. And you feel like you're so old. and you're yes. like I'm an adult. I'm 18. I'm so wise. Look at me go. <laughs>
0: Susie and Stacy were friends since the second grade, and they went to the same school together throughout their entire lives. Stacy was more of the straight and narrow, kind, responsible teenager, while Susie was known for being a little bit more on the edge. She was much more into the art scene mm. and dating the bad boys. Oh. But she herself was never one to get in trouble or cause mischief. I think she just kind of liked being surrounded by that. On the day of graduation, everyone gathered to watch Susie and Stacy graduate high school and get their diploma. Susie's ambitions after high school were to attend cosmetology school and learn how to do hair like her mother. Once graduation ended, there were graduation after parties taking place around town that Susie and Stacy wanted to attend. Most of the graduating class was planning on going to an amusement park the next day called White Water. So, the plan was to go to a party or two and then wake up early and head to the amusement park to spend the day there. Kind of like a post-graduation fun day. Yeah. After they spent the evening going from party to party, Stacy called her mother and told her that she and Susie were going to stay the night at a friend's house named Janelle. Once they arrived at Janelle's house, though, it turned out that there was not enough room for them to stay there. So, they decided to head back to Susie's house, stay there... And they told Janelle that they would call her in the morning and coordinate when to leave for the amusement park. This was around 2 a.m. when they left Janelle's house and they headed back to Susie's. The next morning, Janelle called Susie's house around 7.30 a.m. to get a hold of Stacey and Susie and kind of start planning the day and figure out what time they were going to leave for the amusement park. Dang, that's early, though. I'm like, I know, I just left your house (laughs) five hours hours ago. ago, We were just partying it up, (laughs) but they're ready to go. Go to this amusement park. Mm Must have been fun kind of like a cedar point is what a lot of people said or it used to be called soak city i think now it's called cedar shores or something okay. but that's yeah. kind of the amusement park it was now couldn't get a hold of anyone at the house so she decided to leave a message around twelve thirty p.m though janelle started to really get concerned and she decided that she was going to go with her boyfriend over to Susie's house and check in on the girls and see what was going on when janelle and her boyfriend arrived at Susie's house to check in they both saw all three vehicles in the driveway Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl's cars were all lined up. Janelle and Mike, Janelle's boyfriend, also noticed that there was a bunch of glass in front of the front door. The glass globe that was over the light bulb above the front door was shattered. To prevent Janelle from cutting her feet on the glass because she was barefoot, her boyfriend Mike swept up the glass so they could proceed and go inside the house. The front door was unlocked. Leaving Janelle and Mike able to very easily gain access into the home. Inside the house, nothing seemed out of place. There were no messes, nothing was in disarray, and to Mike and Janelle, nothing seemed unusual. They waited for a few minutes to see maybe if anybody would walk into the house before they decided to just go ahead and leave. As they were heading out of the front door, though, the phone started to ring. Janelle decided to pick up the phone to see if possibly it was Susie or Stacy and was met instead with a male voice making sexually explicit comments and using foul language over and over, almost going on a rant. Oh. Janelle remembers that Susie had complained about prank calls before, so she thought maybe it was just a classmate being immature. A few minutes later, so she hung up, obviously, and then a few minutes later, the phone rang for a second time, and the same voice was on the other end making more sexually explicit comments and saying the F word over and over. What the heck? Yeah, Janelle hung up the phone and she and Mike left the house, determining that it's possible Susie and Stacy decided to go to the water park with other friends and they just forgot to inform them about it. During that morning, Stacy's parents started to become concerned that they had not heard from Stacy yet. Stacy had told her mother the night before that she would call the next morning before leaving for the water park just to check in before heading out. This was before cell phones. There wasn't like Mm -hmm. a quick text you could send like, Hey, I'm on my way out, whatever. She would have had to call from the landline to her mom and say, Oh, we're heading out to the amusement park now. I'll talk to you later or see you later or whatever. When Stacy's mother hadn't heard from her, she decided to call Janelle's house and see if Stacy was still there. That's when Janice, Stacy's mother found out that Stacy never stayed at Janelle's house Mm -hmm. and instead went to Susie's. Janice decided not to get too frantic about not hearing from Stacy so she called some friends that she knew that worked at the water park to try and see if they could look for Stacy, and then let her know that she had made it there and kind of let her know like, hey, your mom's a little worried about you. Why don't you give her a call and let her know you're okay? For sure. Several hours passed, though, with no word from Stacy, and no sighting of Stacy or Susie at the water park. At about 530 p.m., Janice made it to Cheryl's house to see if she could find Stacy. The same time that Janice made it to Cheryl and Susie's house... Janelle and her boyfriend Mike decided to come back to check and see if anyone had made it back home. That's when Janice noticed that Stacy did not take her purse, her driver's license, or her makeup bag. So they went back into the house at this point. And that is oh, when yeah, Stacy's yeah. mom noticed all of Stacy's stuff is still here. She also noticed that Susie and Cheryl's purses were in Susie's room. So all three purses were lined up in a row in Susie's room. Which is weird. Which seemed odd. Mm -hmm. Another puzzling thing that Janice found was that Stacy's clothes that she was last seen wearing were folded up neatly on the dresser in Susie's room sitting on top of her shoes. So she had changed into pajamas. Yeah. Janice decided this was enough to call her husband, Stuart, and tell him that she believed the girls were missing. While Stuart made his way to Cheryl's house, Janice called the police to report all three women missing. Rick Bookout was the police officer that answered the call and arrived at Cheryl Levitt's house. Once he arrived, he first noticed that there were quite a few people in the house. People were coming and going, walking through various entryways. It's never good. (laughs) No. They were making it very difficult for Officer Bookout to know what
1: could be out of place or not. Or what was disheveled or anything right. really and
0: remember at the very beginning when Janelle and Mike came to the house they swept up the glass that was in front of the door so they already Disturbed really evidence. disturbing evidence mm-hmm. tampering with evidence I mean it's you hate to Not see good. it the initial walkthrough doesn't give much insight everything appears to be normal nothing indicated any type of struggle Susie's bed looked as though it had been slept in and you could see that the girls took their makeup off because there were wipes that were in the trash can With their makeup on it. It was obvious that the girls had been there, but where did they go? As mentioned before, all of their purses were still there. The car keys, everything. And Cheryl Levitt's purse still had money in it. Odd. One thing that was slightly alarming for some people was that Cheryl Levitt had left her cigarettes behind. The reason why this was alarming is because she was a chain smoker And nobody ever saw Cheryl without her cigarettes. So the fact that her cigarettes were still at home in her purse was very shocking to everyone. Officer Bookout filled out a missing persons report for each woman, and everyone waited to see what the next steps were going to be. The next morning, Detective David Asher was assigned the case, and he formed a team to kind of start helping him determine where three women would go in the middle of the night without any signs of struggle. But already their investigation was at a disadvantage. At least 10 people had been in and out of Cheryl and Susie's house within the first day of the girls missing. And things things had touched and, moved like, everything. Yeah. Yes. All the things happened. People moved things, touched things, looked under things. Cleaned I mean, up things.
1: Like, yes. Oy, everything.
0: Yeah. So, like, obviously, if a pillow had been, like, misplaced... Someone probably picked it up and put it back on the couch, Mm -hmm. not thinking. So they say there wasn't any sign of struggle and that nothing was out of place. But you don't know for sure. Because when like, when I come home and I have pillows on the floor, I just immediately, instinctively pick up my pillows and put them back on the Mm -hmm. couch. I don't think, oh, wait. Was there a crime scene? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So when people are walking into this house and they see something on the floor, they see something could have happened, they're not thinking something bad happened. They're just cleaning it up. Exactly. Which really stinks. There was no evidence of a struggle, so detectives started to theorize what could have happened. One theory was that the women had fallen victim to some type of ruse, whether it was multiple perpetrators or someone they knew. It was possible that they were tricked out of the house or forced out with the threat of a weapon, resulting in them leaving all their belongings behind. Detectives interviewed family members and tried to focus on Cheryl Levitt. She was recently divorced from Susie's stepfather and had just bought her house, trying to start a new chapter in life. She wasn't known to have any enemies, and she cared deeply for her only daughter, Susie. So as far as anyone knew, Cheryl was enjoying the independence and trying to build a life for her and Susie, and there was no reason to believe that somebody would have done this in retaliation. Yeah. Next, the detectives tried to focus on the anonymous phone calls. Janelle had not kept on the call long enough to determine where the phone call had come from, and Janelle didn't recognize the voice on the other end. So that led to a dead end. Because apparently back then, there was enough technology that if she would have been on the call long enough, they would have been able to ping where the call came from. Yeah.
1: Did they not have a phone number? Like,
0: No, because it was back then before it was like caller
1: ID. Oh, uh, I was going to say, because like, the area code could have told them at least yeah. an idea.
0: Yeah, they didn't have... She wasn't on long enough for them to be able to ping like a location and they didn't have caller ID or anything Dang. like that. It quickly hits the 48-hour mark since anyone has seen or heard from these three women and immediately the town is on edge, fearing the worst has happened and that these three women are not going to be coming home. Mm-hmm. Family and friends started to hand out flyers at all the local businesses and pass them out to anyone that would take one, trying to get Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy the attention needed to make their case go public. This worked because not long after the media got a hold of the story and you could see all three women on television sets throughout several counties. So getting their pictures out there and getting the story out there, it did work because a lot of people were being notified of these three women just up and vanishing. The publicity did help, but the leads went from about only 500 or so to about 5,000 leads. And there was no lead left unturned. And eventually, detectives focused in on a suspicious family member. Oh. Detectives learned that Cheryl Levitt has a son named Bart Streeter, who is Susie's older brother. He's nine years older than Susie. He was an alcoholic, and he had a really toxic relationship with Cheryl and Susie that escalated because of a recent falling out. The falling out was so bad... That Cheryl Levitt had actually disinherited Bart. Wow, that's a big deal. He had such a violent temper as well that Susie was scared for her safety and believed that Bart would absolutely hurt her if given the chance. Susie had seen Bart hit her mom before, so it was a very real logical fear. Mm -hmm. A few years after the falling out happened, Bart ended up moving back to Springfield and he tried to make amends. He received help for alcoholism. He tried to turn his life around. He found a good job where he was making some decent money. And it was during Susie's senior year of high school that she actually decided to move in with Bart four miles away from her mom, Cheryl's house. Wow. So he, they had this huge falling out. He got disinherited. And then he's like, you know what? I'm becoming a better person. And Cheryl never like re-inherited him. But him trying to make amends... Cheryl always had her guard up, but Susie, I think, was just hoping that maybe her and her older brother could have some type of relationship, relationship, and she was a teenager that was a little rebellious, so moving out of her mom's house was very appealing Mm -hmm. at that time. Cheryl wasn't completely fond of the idea, but she believed that the only way Susie would ever truly see who Bart was was to let her go and live with him and kind of have to witness it herself. Sure enough, it wasn't long before Susie and Bart would fight over how loud he played the stereo or how Bart had gotten super drunk and was getting back into drinking excessively. There was a nine-year age difference between them. It doesn't seem like a lot, but I personally have a brother who's eight years older than me. And I know for a fact we would not be as close as we are today if I lived with him when I was 18 and he was 26. Mm -hmm. You're at two different points of your life. Completely. And not to mention you're already at a disadvantage because your brother is a toxic person who is a recovering alcoholic and now he's getting back into his alcoholism. Well, and
1: not only that, but when you're the older sibling, you're like, well, it's my house. I can do what I want. Right. We're not sharing the space. Mm -hmm. You're living in my space sort of thing. So yeah, that's not a good idea. No.
0: In one instance, when Susie tried to intervene and turn the stereo down when she thought it was too loud, Bart hit Susie across the face to get her away from the stereo. Oh, no. He hit her hard enough to cause a bruise to form. And that marked the end of their relationship. So, kind of, Cheryl's theory, in a way, worked out because
1: Susie got to see who Bart truly was, and she moved out of his home. Well, and sometimes when it comes to things like that, you have to see it for yourself. You won't believe what anyone is telling you. So, even if Cheryl, even if Cheryl said something to Susie, I'm mm-hmm. sure Susie would have been like, Yeah, whatever, mom. Like, oh, that's you just, just don't want us to have a relationship, yes. you know? Yeah, like, she would have probably went about it that way. And then, but it is unfortunate that she was traumatized, yeah, by her brother hitting her. Yep, to have to learn that to
0: have to figure out, like, wow, my mom he does was right, he really mm-hmm. does suck. Bart was brought in for formal questioning to see where he was the night of June 6th, the night that the three women went missing. Bart stated that he was watching TV with a neighbor and drinking. The neighbor verified that Bart had been over, that he had gotten quite drunk, and that Bart had left to go home around 1130 and fell asleep at home and did not leave his home that night. But there are no witnesses to attest that he was home all night. The neighbor yeah, just like, knows when
1: he left the Yeah, his I was like, once he left, he has no idea.
0: Yeah. So Bart agreed to a polygraph test, and that determined that Bart was being truthful, but again... We've all have learned that polygraphs are not like the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Just because he passed a polygraph doesn't mean that he's innocent.
1: Exactly. Well, just because he's an alcoholic doesn't mean that one he can't black out still. So if he did black out, oh, <laughs> so if he did black out, how do we know that he even remembers if he did attack them? Yes. You know, it's it's exactly. It's possible that he acted violent or done
0: something without even remembering it because he left his neighbor's house. He was already very drunk to say he didn't drink more and then went to he only lived four miles away from Cheryl's house yeah it's not uh, out of their own possibility for him to walk down there it's again a little bit of a walk and he was drunk but again not out of their own possibility and that is something that detectives kind of like wondered well if he blacked out how would he know
1: well Ian alcoholics I'm sure they drink and drive all the time oh yeah so who says he didn't drive there but what was such a fallback for the detectives is
0: that they didn't... They weren't able to find any evidence in the house. They, they didn't pull any fingerprints of anyone that hadn't already been there. They didn't have any DNA evidence, nothing. Yeah. They had nothing to be able to say, Bart was here. Yeah. We have his fingerprints. But if he stayed
1: outside, like, there's, there's always ways around it. Yep. Always. If, like, he, had, if he had a gun or something or a knife and he mm-hmm. was outside... They could have been terrified because they know who he is and, and what they know he does. how horrible he is, yeah.
0: Detectives and volunteers searched all the surrounding areas near Springfield, trying to find anything that could lead them to finding these three women. As time continued to pass, the hope of Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy being found alive very much dwindled. Lake Springfield was searched for bodies and evidence, cadaver and police dogs were used, helicopters were brought in to search for any type of clue that would give detectives a break in the case. But as each day passed, there were no leads, and family members of these women became less and less hopeful that they were going to see their loved ones again. The investigation continued to look mostly at the people that were closest to the women, and that is when detectives looked at Susie's ex-boyfriend, Dustin Reckla. Dustin worked at the movie theater with Susie, and for the most part, their relationship was really good. It was your typical teenage relationship. Mm -hmm. Dustin was said to be a nice guy that was funny and attractive, and he was very fun to be around, and he knew how to have a good time. Dustin Reckle and his friend Michael Clay had been involved in a mausoleum break-in that involved them taking the corpses that were in the mausoleum what? and stealing the teeth out of their heads. Mm-hmm. Wh- for what? Sadistic and horrifying reasons. It's never said why they did it or, like, for what reason. It just sounds extremely horrifying to me And any To get teeth? Like, yeah. They took the skulls what? out of the... Because just for anyone that's not quite sure what a mausoleum is, if you go to um, a cemetery, it almost looks like those big, like, little... Sh- I don't want to say sheds, but they look like...
1: sheds. like the buildings that are... Yeah. It's yes. like you're buried above ground. And it's almost like...
0: What, not even a, not a corpse. What is it called?
1: It's kind of like a museum. Like it's like marble, it's like bougie. Yeah, and you can
0: walk in. I mean, obviously you only have access to it if you're a family member, but you can walk in and there are multiple People. people in this one little like building. Yeah. And that's the mausoleum. So there are multiple corpses in a mausoleum and only family members usually have access to it. I've seen some, I've been in some. I mean, it's just
1: really interesting. And sometimes it's even just their ashes. It's not even yeah. their bodies. So yeah. Well, in other states, such as Louisiana, mm-hmm. when they'll bury people above ground because of the flooding. And they also have a lot of superstitions if you're yeah. buried underground. Like, they have a lot of crazy. So, if you see those typical, uh, oh, what's, this? what's the what's the Mardi Gras town? New Orleans. New Orleans. If you go to New Orleans or you know anything about it, you see all those buildings with people. Yes, those. yes, yes. They're, uh, and, um, oh my God, I'm like, not. Bl- I'm blanking on the words. You can see them in the Their movie, grave, The, the Princess grave and the Frog. Yards. What are they called? Cemeteries. Their cemeteries almost are strictly people yeah. buried above ground.
0: Yes. In the movie, Disney movie, total kid disney reference but in the princess and the frog they have, set in new yeah. orleans you can see it there's like a scene where they're in like a cemetery and it's a bunch of these buildings yes. with like coffins in them so yes. <laughs> i understand what you're saying but they had broken into one of these mausoleums and they stole the skulls and took teeth out of the skulls for what reason i couldn't find it's yeah, just that's horrifying like the weirdest thing i've yeah. heard in my life But it was discovered that Susie's car was used when the crime was committed, so she was made an accessory to the crime. Oh, wow. To prevent being charged for her car being used, because she had no idea what they were doing with her car. She just let them use her car because she was dating Dustin. Mm -hmm. Police expected Susie to testify against Dustin and Michael in court and verify that they had broken into the mausoleum while using her car, and she would be let off scot-free, so she wouldn't get in trouble. This clearly gives Dustin and Michael a motive for wanting to kill Susie both of the boys were upset that Susie was cooperating with police and they couldn't believe that she would betray them Dustin and Michael were both brought in for questioning they were given polygraph tests ultimately even with how angry they were and they didn't have any type of alibi the lack of evidence kept investigators from being able to hold them so they had no alibi they could not explain where they were but there's no evidence. They have nothing to hold them on. You think to
1: kill someone, though?
0: I don't. I personally, they're young kids. I could see them being kind of, and a lot of people that were interviewed said that Dustin Recklow was a very sweet kid, but he just got in with the wrong crowd. So the Michael kid, Michael Clay, I, he just seemed like he was one of those kids that could be really mean and talk a big game but I don't see them being able to one kill three women two conceal killing three like women smart enough to do it yes and three being able to come in and be questioned by police and not have some type of like breakdown because everyone said if Dustin had done something he would have been the first one to crack
1: well and I just think I I totally understand people have been killed for less mm-hmm. because people are crazy but I just don't see to. I just don't see it being realistic. No,
0: and they have killing. no history of any type of violence, or they were honestly, again, it's sadistic and horrifying that they broke into and they took skulls and teeth out of the skulls. But they never
1: were arrested for violence.
0: Well, or and assault. I think of
1: I think of like, and, and this is not excusing them for no. what they did because it's not acceptable, but. You know, like, the boys will be boys sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like boys are weird and do stupid stuff. Sh- they do. Stuff, you yes. know? So, I don't know if it's, like, that kind of thing. To Granted. me, that's what it
0: seems like. They were being troublemakers. Then they got caught. And then yeah. they were pissed off because they had someone that knew they did it. Yeah. And she's like, well, I don't want to get in trouble for you guys being stupid. And I think they were just angry about that. But investigators still to this day, they, they don't believe that it was Dustin or Michael. Yeah. But they're... They're still kind of kept there in kind of like the group of suspects because Mm -hmm. they didn't have an alibi. So they couldn't really say where they were. Yeah. A few months into the investigation, a tip came in about how a potential killer was located in Springfield, Missouri at the time of the disappearances. This potential killer was named Robert Cox, and he was convicted of kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon. Robert Cox was also discovered to be the prime suspect in the 1976 murder of a woman named Sharon Zellers in Florida. Sharon Zellers was a teenager that had been abducted on December 30th, 1976 on her way home from Disney, where she had been working. Sharon's body had been found six days after she went missing, stuffed into a manhole at a sewage pumping station. Wow. She died from blunt force trauma to the head. At the time of her disappearance... Cox had been staying at a nearby hotel with his parents. The night that Sharon disappeared, Cox had returned back to the hotel room, badly injured. His tongue had almost been bitten off.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Which he claimed happened when somebody tried to mug him and he was taken to the hospital. (laughs) What, did they like try to bite your tongue off while you were... He was taken to the hospital and actually part of his tongue, he lost part of his tongue. And so they had to basically like do what they could to fix it. But a few days later, so after being released from the hospital and a few days later, Sharon's body was found and it was 100 feet from his hotel room. Wow. Cox was convicted and sentenced to death for the slaying of Sharon Zellers, but he only spent two years in jail the Supreme Court appealed his conviction citing lack of evidence and they overturned his sentencing.
1: What?
0: There's not a ton of information about Sharon Zeller's case. I mean, I looked everywhere. And the only thing that I could really find was that her body was found. They didn't have much evidence. Um, she had died with like multiple blunt force hits to the head. So, uh-huh. And she was literally stuffed in this manhole. But the reason why they thought it was Cox was because in her mouth, and again, this was really before DNA was a huge thing, but she did have blood around her mouth. And they tried saying that, well, this is because she bit off his tongue. Like, that's Mm. what this is from. But then the defense said, well, no, she had blunt force trauma to the head. The blood could have been from her getting, like, hit in the back of the head. Yeah. So there was a lot of contradicting evidence, but all of it lined up to even – uh, Sharon Zeller's parents were like it's it's him he's the guy how much more evidence do you need For but real. the Supreme Court came out and said there's not enough you guys weren't able I to prove wonder it enough. If they
1: have looked into this sense have they d- tried doing DNA not sense no yeah I'm wondering mm-hmm. they should
0: because that's crazy hmm but this allowed a very violent man to be allowed to walk freely in 1992, Robert Cox moved to Springfield, Missouri. Sharon Zeller's parents are actually the ones that called the tip into investigators about oh. the disappearance of Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. Wow. Sharon's parents believed that Cox was very dangerous. They believed he was potentially a serial killer, and they kept tabs on him. To make sure that if anything happened to young women in the area that he was living, people were informed. So they had private investigators, like, following him. So they always knew where he was. They knew where he was living. They knew more or less what he was doing. So then if something came up or something happened, they would know and they would let authorities know, like, hey, this is the guy that you have living around you. So that's when they called into investigators and said, have you heard about this man? He was living in this area. You should really look into him. Mm -hmm. So investigators immediately looked into this tip, and they started learning a lot more about who Robert Cox was. Not long after looking into him, they were able to make a pretty spooky connection between Robert Cox and the three missing women. At the time of the disappearance, Cox had been working for a telephone company that had been surveying the underground wiring in front of Cheryl and Susie's house. Oh, no. So he clearly was in a position that he could have knocked on their door at 3 a.m., 2 a.m., whatever, and said, oh, I'm with the telephone company. We're doing this work. I'm so sorry to disturb you guys, but I need you to come out of the house because of something mm-hmm. or other. And what are what are they going to think? And yeah. then he gets them out of the house. We already know he's a violent man. Mm-hmm.
1: There you go. Well, and when you see someone in a uniform, you automatically trust them. Exactly. Whether they, need, they, they might not or even not be.
0: well, and the bulb over the front door was broken, was broken. Mm-hmm. so he could have pretended to be a police officer or someone totally different, yeah, and got them to come out because he was wearing a type of uniform. Another connection they found was that Cox had previously been employed at the same car dealership that Stacy's father worked at. Stacy's father, to this day, says, "I don't think that there's a connection there." But, but Stacy was known for coming into her father's workplace from time to time,
1: and she was seen by Cox. Well, Co- the coincidence of him working on their in front of their house, and, and that work, yes. like you're telling me there's no connection. That's
0: exactly. Robert Cox was interviewed, and he immediately claimed that he had nothing to do with their disappearance. He stated that he spent the night with his parents, and then the next morning he took his girlfriend to church. After speaking with the girlfriend, investigators are kind of set back to square one because they realize that Cox had an alibi for the night of the murder and there was no evidence to contradict what he was telling them.
1: But his alibi was from his girlfriend?
0: His parents and his girlfriend.
1: Like, you can't trust alibis no, from
0: parents
1: or girlfriends. Or girlfriends. <laughs> no. No. Like it's That's so- like Alibi 101.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 1995, Robert Cox was arrested in Decatur, Texas, for holding an armed weapon on a twelve year old girl. What? He was sentenced to life in prison for aggravated robbery and investigators started to wonder if hey maybe we should interview this man again for the disappearance of Cheryl, Susie and Stacy. Wow. So investigators were sent from Springfield, Missouri to Decatur, Texas, and they were re-interviewing him given the fact that the nature of his recent crime very much could have matched with what happened, could have happened to these missing women.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Once being interviewed again, Robert Cox changed his story. Oh, of he course doesn't he admit to being involved in the disappearance, but he also doesn't deny it. So he didn't come out and say, I didn't do it, or I did do it, but, he just, but he's just very stoic wow so when asked he all of a sudden is like i could have done it but i'm not gonna say i did it but i'm also not gonna say i didn't do it
1: because he's he's contained in texas yeah which is a kill state Mm -hmm. so he probably doesn't want to get on death row that's probably why he won't admit it yep because he's he's in life he's life in prison but not not being killed
0: yes After being re-interviewed, Cox refused to talk any further, so police turned to his former girlfriend and they asked her again where Robert Cox was the night of the disappearance of these women. She admitted that she had lied to investigators. Are you kidding? And that she actually had no idea where he was the night of the disappearance, and that he had not taken her to church the next morning. Are you... I wish I were investigators still had very little evidence to go off of, so they started to try to find any way that they could link him to the missing women.
1: You mean the freaking him working? That's but, not enough link? But there's
0: no, there's really no other evidence for them to go off of, and this is where you go back to where it really, really is, I'm sure... That Stacy's parents and Cheryl and Susie's family members are all so frustrated. The amount of people that were in the house that day—I'm actually—I'm sure Stacy's parents are kicking themselves for being part of the group mm-hmm. that was in Going that in house. Yeah. Because the amount of evidence that was lost due to that, yeah. due to that, is probably overwhelming. Yeah. Shockingly though, 4 years after the disappearance of Cheryl, Susie and Stacy, Robert Cox agreed to an interview from prison with a local TV station. During that interview he stated, "I know that they're dead." What? I'll say that. For fear of embarrassing his mother while she is still alive cuz oh, we wouldn't want to embarrass Mrs. Cox. Like dude, you're in jail for that yes. already. What do you mean? For holding a, a weapon to a 12-year-old girl? Robert Cox refuses to say anything more about the disappearance of Cheryl, Susie and Stacy until his mother has passed away. And
1: how old is she? She's in her eighties. Well, she better get to kicking. Cause like, yep, what the yeah, actual... I did look it
0: up and actually it was in June of 2023. Somebody kind of like went out there and posted, yep, she's still alive. And she was seen recently visiting him in Texas. Mm. <laughs> so she's still doing good.
1: But this he, is crazy. he
0: refuses to talk until his mother dies. And this could be a case of him just wanting attention from the media because we've seen it so many times. So he could mm-hmm. be saying, well, until my mother dies, I won't speak. And then when, her, when his mother passes away, he'll be like, oh, just kidding. I'm still not going to talk to you. Yeah. But he also could come out and say like, well, hey, yeah, my mom's, I don't have to worry about embarrassing her anymore. And this is what happened. What I mean? do not believe that for a second. I don't think he's going to talk. I think he I think he had something to do with this. I think he's a cold, calculated, horrible person. I think he knows more than he's letting on. For sure. And unfortunately, Well, though, that also makes
1: me think that he said, I know that they're dead. I'll say that. Yeah. So do you have someone that worked with you? Yeah. Because that makes me feel like you had more than one person. Well, and that was something investigators, they truly believed that it had to have
0: been more than one person. I wonder if there's a connection to between him and the three- brother. There isn't. I did see that in my research. There's no connection between Bart okay. Streeter and Robert I'm like, Cox.
1: This is questionable.
0: Yeah. But unfortunately, five years after the woman disappeared, police couldn't justify even allowing their officers to work on the case part time. So Dang. it's considered a cold case to this day. But it's not forgotten. It's still very heavily talked about, especially in Springfield, Missouri. Tips are still looked into when they come in. The case is still in the forefront of investigators' minds. They hope that one day it will be resolved. A lot of them believe that eventually somebody's going to crack, eventually somebody's going to come forward, but a lot of them believe that there is a lot of information that lies with Robert Cox because it just seems too coincidental that a woman, a young girl, died when he was A hundred feet away from where her body was found. And then he moves to Springfield, Missouri. And within two years of living in Springfield, Missouri, three women come up missing. And he was working at their house with a telephone company. Too many coincidences.
1: He clearly
0: knows something.
1: And he clearly can't not be violent because he then, a few years later... Or however long. Three like, years later. Three he, years later, he uh, mm-hmm. held a gun to a twelve-year-old. Well, and
0: after these three women went missing, it wasn't long before he opted and moved to Decatur, Texas. So he moved from Missouri to Texas in just the span of a couple months after Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie went missing,
1: and no one even knew about him. No. Yeah, I I definitely think he had something to do with it. If not, was the person that did it. Mm-hmm. But I also question what I feel like is going to happen. Is his mom's going to pass away? He's going to make a big show out of it, and he's going to require that he cannot be put to death. Yep. And he'll probably want to interview live TV Mm -hmm. and want to see attention.
0: Yeah. That's like, I agree 100%. If he does it, he's going to make sure he does it on his terms, that there's something in it for him Mm -hmm. to keep him from being put on death row
1: or anything like that. And that is just... Which, if he's tried in um, Missouri, maybe he's going to like try to get transferred to Missouri. Because I know Texas prisons are the harshest prisons in the country. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's going to try and get moved and then take the death penalty off because typically if you, I don't know if Missouri is death penalty or not, I'd have to look it up but I know that a lot of serial killers, if they've committed in multiple states, Mm -hmm. they will only admit to the ones that don't have the death penalty. That's very true. So maybe that, like, let me Google it real quick.
0: So I I 100% believe that he had something more to do with it. It just irritates me to no end that he says he won't say anything in order to refrain from embarrassing his mother. Like, oh, how kind of you to not want to embarrass your mother. But it's very possible that you killed three innocent women and you just aren't going to say anything to anybody.
1: Okay, so I th- I think it is a death penalty state.
0: Missouri is. Yes. So he's probably hold- withholding the information. So now
1: he's... Yeah, he's he's screwed either way.
0: <laughs> well, no, because if he says, I'll give you all this information, I know, but you I know things, but I refuse yeah. to... I want to be transferred to Missouri, and I will not be put to death. Yeah. I'll give you everything you need to know, and I bet you he'll have information that hasn't even been released to the public, because investigators have said there are some things they've kept close to the chest, which... I don't blame them because if it's something only a, I don't want to say killer, because they can't say for sure if they were murdered. There's no signs of that. But there's only certain things that the person who's responsible for this crime would know. Yeah. But I could say without a doubt, I think that they were let out of their house with some type of ruse at early morning hours when they were already asleep and they were disoriented from sleep. And Mm. then they didn't stand a chance. So,
1: yeah, I would agree with that and if he did have a partner in in it having mm-hmm. two grown men yep. coming at you and you have a daughter and her friend with her mm-hmm. it, you're very intimidated
0: yep and neighbors also came out and said that they didn't hear any commotion at all so that makes me think too that they were led either like away from the house and very easily put probably into a car mm-hmm. or into s- some vehicle to get out of there be transported mm-hmm. away And nobody heard anything. As of today, um, in 2023, there's a bench dedicated to Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy in a park in Springfield, Missouri, in their memory. Family and friends still keep hope that their loved ones are alive, but they've also come to terms that they may be dead. Stacy's mom was interviewed saying that there's a part of her that will always believe that her daughter's out there in her 40s, and that she's going to be found. But there's also that part of her that sometimes goes to where her daughter is still 18 and she's mm-hmm. in heaven. And that's so heartbreaking. Not
1: knowing what where to kind of let your mind go. For sure. And also, when someone dies or disappears, they are forever stamped in their age. Mm-hmm. So they for are forever 18. They are forever yep. 23 or whatever their age yep. is. So
0: it reminds me of the show Cold Case Files when or I think it was just called Cold Case, where it was just a show, like a drama show about detectives that worked on cold cases. But Mm -hmm. at the end of every episode, it would show the victim at the age or how they looked when they died. Mm -hmm. And every time it was like a younger person and they showed the victim at their age of like 16, 17 or whatever. And um, then it would show when they solved the case, like it would show the murderer But it would show the murder at the age of 16 Mm. and then the murder like today. So kind of giving to your point that the victim's always forever stamped in your mind as that age. That age, yeah. Any age projection picture, it's still, that's not who they are. Yeah,
1: it's hard to visualize. Like, okay, that actually could be them or whatever.
0: If you have any information about what they call the Springfield 3, please call the Springfield Police Department at 417-864 one eight one zero as always thank you for listening to crime connections if you so kindly would please follow share and go like us on facebook at crime connections or follow us at instagram at crime connections pod you can also join in on the discussion of these cases at our new discussion facebook page crime connections podcast discussion board if you have any tips news or cases you want us to look into please feel free to email or dm us we love hearing from you guys
1: thanks thanks guys